Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hey, this is Sam Black with the uh, newest uh, episode of Drafting Archetypes. Today we are going to be talking about drafting green-white in Kaldheim. This is one of my favorite uh, archetypes in the set, so pretty excited to talk about it. But first, I want to uh, thank all of my new patrons over at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. So uh, thank you very much to the support to Zeke, Christian, Sam, Ossetate, Thomas, and Arnaud, 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 sorry, really appreciate the support from everyone. Uh, for anyone who um, doesn't, isn't aware and likes the podcast and is interested in additional content, if you check out uh, patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, you can support the podcast and get benefits like access to my show notes where I compile all of the my can just organize my thoughts before talking about each color combination and also vote on what uh, we'll be talking about each week and also get all of my draft logs and stuff like that. For now, let's get on to content here and talking about green-white. I think before I get into like any details at all, any of the top cards or anything, I think the like main kind of like driving factor and like fundamental like driving force or like what's going on with green white is that green white in this set is basically about making your creatures bigger in some way and there are a lot of different ways that green white accomplishes that and your like deck is kind of just like defined by how it's going about increasing the size of its creatures and what those creatures are and stuff like that and Obviously, uh, the different ways of making your creatures bigger encourages, encourage, like, you know, some creatures want certain ways of making them bigger, and some ways of making your creatures bigger want certain creatures. And obviously, you know, there are a lot of, like, concerns about synergy that follow from that. But I think that the heart of what we're looking at is green-white is about creatures. You're going to have a high creature density. You're going to have high creature quality. You're going to use small creatures pretty well because you have a lot of different options for how to make those creatures bigger and get more uh, utility out of them. The fundamental like different ways to make your creatures bigger are auras, enchantments, instants, and like creature abilities or static effects. And um, those different things get used in different combinations um, toward different game plans, different mana curves, different other strategic factors. So um, I want that to kind of like set the stage for how we're thinking about and analyzing the cards uh, that we're looking at here. So I think still before going into like the details about like uncommons that, you know, put you into like inform certain considerations about which direction you're going and stuff, I want to kind of talk a little bit more big picture first. The like most aggressive, lowest curve way to go about what I'm talking about, uh, making playing creatures and making them bigger, is to use auras. Auras are the most aggressive because 
uh, they cost less mana to use than equipment. And uh, when you play them without spending any additional mana, your creature gets bigger. And then the drawback, of course, is that if your opponent answers that creature, you don't get to like spend more mana to use it again for something else the way that you can with an equipment. The, um, so the advantage here, obviously, is that you save mana up front, which um, means that you can basically just like kill your opponent faster. Um, so the aura deck is basically like um, the commons that I think that this deck relies on or revolves around are kind of like Battlefield Raptor and Story Seeker in particular more than any other creatures because those creatures have really good keywords that make them strong to enchant. Battlefield Raptor has flying, Story Seeker has lifelink. Both of those are really good to add extra power to, especially early. The next most important creature, I think, is Jaspara Sentinel, just because it lets you get away with playing really low land counts and fixes your colored mana and stuff like that. And then the spells that are important to pair with this are Arachniform, which is the generally thought of as extremely bad uh, green and one aura that gives your creature plus two plus two and makes it all creature types and probably gives it reach. And Snakeskin Veil. Uh, which is the instant that gives a plus one plus one counter and hexproof until end of turn. And the idea is that if you put Arachniform on something like a Battlefield Raptor or a Story Seeker, it's going to severely outclass the other creatures that can be cast in a similar time frame. And also most removal isn't going to be online at that point. And then after you've done that, or you could wait until turn three to do it and hold up a Snakeskin Veil, and now you're prepared to counter your opponent's first removal spell while making your creature even bigger. And given that you only have to hold up one mana for the rest of the game to represent the snakeskin veil, you get to keep making plays because everything in your deck is so cheap. And if you have a turn where you get to play two spells and your opponent spends their whole turn on something that's countered while you make your creature bigger, it's really, really easy to like have that tempo swing snowball into killing your opponent. And there are a bunch of other cheap creatures, a bunch of other auras and equipment that you can kind of treat like an aura, and some pump spells that make it so that if your opponent does answer your first thing and they get a two-for-one with their removal spell or something, you can still potentially just, you know, do it again, reassemble another creature with another aura, and still be in a position to kill them before they can use all the cards in their hand and so it doesn't matter that they got a single two for one because you've gotten a bunch of virtual card advantage by ending the game before they could cast all their spells that's like you know the gold vein pick raven wings or some other important cards for this deck those are equipment i understand i'm talking about equipment and this like aura deck separately but there's going to be a lot of overlap here um we, we are talking about a two color combination in limited that, that have 100% overlap in commons that are available. You're going to need to be able to use a lot of different cards that are available to you in any deck that you're drafting. It's more about you know how highly you're prioritizing each of them and um, how well you take advantage of them and stuff. So like this deck, uh, because its curve is so low, unless it's really really high on like has a lot of uh, battlefield raptors and stalwart valkyries and starnheim coursers, it's going to like make good use of raven wings because its curve is so low that the two to equip raven wings isn't going to hurt you very much and if you move it between you know a story secret they have to answer and then maybe another one or a beskir shield mate or something like that 
um, it's still going to be very good at like finishing this game where you started, you know, getting a bunch of damage in with your opponent on the back foot, and then maybe they like stabilize with some big ground creatures, and then you go over with Raven Wings. So um, that's like the most aggressive build, and uh, this build can get away with really low land counts, like fourteen lands or something, because you just need like one land of each of your color, and you can each color, and you can cast basically all your spells. Um, drawing a third land is nice, and you probably will have 14 lands. Remember that 14 lands in limited sounds crazy low, right? Like, it's very, it's, you know, like, wow, that's three fewer than I usually play. But remember that 14 lands in limited is uh, the same ratio as 21 lands in constructed. And you've probably played 21 land aggro decks not terribly infrequently in constructed. Less often these days. Uh, these days, the aggro decks are playing a lot more lands, but for a lot of Magic's history, it was very normal to play aggro decks with land counts in that range, um, especially if they're low-curve aggro decks. Obviously, limited, you're going to have a little bit of issues in terms of, you know, not like drawing one color and not the other if your land count is that low in a two-color deck. Uh, also, you know, part of this is, of course, the Arena Hand Smoother is going to help you out a little bit if your land count's that low. Um, Anyway, moving on to the other directions, there's uh, what I think of as equipment mid-range. You know, you're more likely to play 17 lands or something, and you're basically taking advantage of uh, the equipment that's available, especially the premium uncommon equipment, but also gold vein pick. So, like gold vein pick, elven bow, uh, Valkyrie sword, and ruined crown. Uh, are all super, super, super premium cards in this archetype that I see as kind of driving the archetype. And then any mix of a good curve of green and white creatures with like those equipments where it's likely that your game is going to revolve around like... Sometimes, sometimes you're going to attack with a lot of creatures. Sometimes you're just going to suit up one creature and attack with that. Sometimes you're going to like use your equipment defensively until you like do something bigger or you're going to like use your... Uh, especially Elven Bow to like create a board stall where you can maybe uh, like backdoor into some of the next deck type that I want to talk about, which is go wide team pump. And um, obviously, like the equipment mid range is going to share a lot of elements with decks that really like lean on and focus, lean into and focus on the go wide stuff, and also. You know, there's overlap between the like equipment stuff and the or aggro stuff, but um, the go wide team pump stuff. This is decks that take advantage of um, Clarion Spirit and Elderleaf Mentor, uh, potentially um, Usher of the Fallen, or just you know casting a lot of creatures to establish a wide battlefield where they can take advantage of Maya, Redigard Protector, that's the uh, signpost uncommon that pumps your whole team, as well as Battleshield Warrior, Battleshield Warrior, the uh, uncommon that boasts to pump your team, potentially Warhorn Blast, and then more importantly than Warhorn Blast, I guess, but also notably, there are a lot of rares that help out here. Uh, Rally the Ranks, the uh, anthem that you choose a creature type and it pumps all creatures of that type. As it turns out in green-white, it's really easy to draft a deck where most or all of your creatures are warriors that uses Rally the Ranks really well. I've, I've had, I had one deck that was 
Green White Warriors, where I had both Rally the Ranks and the Mythic Angel Warrior that like exiles a creature to put counters on your whole team and does that again when it dies. And so I had like multiple rare and mythics that were like contributing to this like make all my creatures bigger thing. Uh, Elvish Warmaster is another rare that lets you make your creatures bigger. Only your elves, but you can lean into having a bunch of elves. Yeah, those those are like fundamentally what's going on. There, you know, there are other things that are making your creatures bigger, like uh, Bredegard Stronghold. Like fundamentally, I'm assuming that if you're drafting green and white, you're going to have a high creature density, and you're going to have things that make them bigger so that they don't get blanked by your opponent's creatures. You're going to generally welcome a board stall because you're uh, pretty good at like taking advantage of like now I have a lot of creatures in play, I can make them all big. Though, if you're more like the Lowland Count Agro, you're going to be less interested in a game that, you know, stalemates like that. So, now let's get back to where I usually start and talk about the, like, premium uncommons that are often going to put you in this archetype and what information they provide about which of these different directions you're going to want to be focusing on. So, Elven Bow, you know, great on, like, I, I think. The whole cycle of uncommon or, uh, equipment, colored colored uncommon equipment, I think every single one of them is a really, really strong card, and I think Elven Bow is actually secretly the best of the cycle. I say secretly because I think it's often less impressive because it costs less mana than all the others, but I think that like the effect, the the amount of the the power that you're getting for three mana, I think is more relative to three mana than the power that you're getting for five mana out of uh, most of the rest of the cycle. This obviously, to me, pushes toward the equipment mid-range strategy, uh, but it's a strong enough card that is great in any green-white deck or any green deck. Usher the Fallen. This is the 2-1 uh, that boasts to make a creature. Um, this is like a very aggressive card, so it's if you're starting with it, it pushes you toward low-curve aggro. Really good in the like aura smashroom deck totally serviceable uh you know it's good to have a one drop and it can make uh creatures for the other archetypes in this color combination but i think you're going to get the most value out of this like the more aggressive you are the more exceptional it's going to be in your deck clarion spirit is the, the uh to do that makes a token when you cast your second a flying token when you cast your second spell this is just great in everything Best if you're either uh, trying to go wide and really valuing the tokens that it makes, or if you're the low curve aggro deck. Uh, basically, like the payoff is best if you're going wide, but you're best at enabling it in the low curve aggro deck because the more one and two mana spells you have in your deck, the easier it is to trigger Clarion Spirit. Finn the Fangbearer. This is the one three death touch uh, legend that gives poison counters on your opponent. Great card. Um, making like if you make Finn any bigger, it really quickly becomes a nightmare for your opponent to deal with. So it's really good in any of these green white decks. It particularly likes fight spells and equipment. the The only fight spell we're really looking at is Struggle for Scamfire. But it, I mean, I guess technically it's good with Blizzard Brawl. I'm not that excited about Blizzard Brawl in green white, but Finn with Struggle for Scamfire is amazing. Rune of Might and Rune of Sustenance are both cards that I'm totally happy to first pick to start a draft. Uh, obviously, these cards really want you to have equipment. They're much better to cast on equipment than on creatures. 
Um, so they push me a little bit toward the equipment mid-range version, but again, they're going to be great in any green-white deck. Even if you end up somehow having no equipment, they're both going to be very good cards, uh, regardless of what your strategy is in green-white. Valkyrie's Sword, this one pushes like pretty strongly toward the equipment mid-range deck, since you do want to plan to get to 7 mana for it. It's probably not good if you're playing 15 lands and, or 14 lands and need literally half the lands in your deck to cast it, unless you have like 3 gold vein picks, maybe? Fall the Imposter, uh, the saga that puts a plus one plus one counter twice and then exiles your opponent's most powerful creature. This is the the primary incentive that I find with Fall the Imposter is that it, I feel much better about having it in my deck if I have a lot of one and two mana creatures so that I can play it on turn three or four, immediately put a counter on something, and be in a spot where even if my opponent kills the creature that I put a counter on, I'm still going to be able to put the second counter on something else. So I really like to have two creatures on the battlefield when I cast Fall of the Imposter, which is a tall ask if you're casting it on turn three. You also don't necessarily want to cast Fall of the Imposter before your opponent has a creature, because you want to like maximize the chances that you get value out of every single chapter. But I've found, like I've played Fall of the Imposter in control decks, and you end up in a pretty awkward spot in terms of like it's slow to kill your opponent's thing, you're not always able to use the plus one plus one counters. Whereas Fall of the Imposter is really, really good in an aggro deck where the counters are rewarding you a lot, and then even if your opponent doesn't have a creature, the fact that they're uh, incentivized not to cast a creature to like make you miss the third chapter, you're able to really punish them by pushing a lot of extra damage if they choose to like wait to play a creature. I like Fall of the Imposter a lot more the more low-to-the-ground aggro you are, the more value you're getting out of those counters and not just trying to play it as a clunky removal spell. Kaya's Onslaught, this is the plus one plus one double strike for Tell Spell. This card is amazing in red-white, uh, where it really loves run amok. It's not as great in uh, the slower green-white decks that don't have a lot of pump spells, but it is really good in the like green-white aura deck that's really low to the ground. It's a great way to end the game early, and uh, the auras do a good job of functioning as pump spells in that count context in terms of like getting a lot more damage out of your Kai's Onslaughts, and those decks are not unhappy to play a Mammoth Growth or two, and Mammoth Growth Kai's Onslaught is a, an enormous amount of damage, especially if you have a flyer to reliably connect with there. Ruined Crown obviously pushes you primarily toward the equipment mid-range kind of strategy. Not at its best in the Hyper Aggro deck, just because it's so man-intensive, but functional there if you have some runes. Maya uh, this is going to be best in the uh, go-wide decks, but um, totally functional if you're anything other than the most aggressive decks. Uh, very strong card. Shepherd of the Cosmos, generically great in everything. Doesn't really matter what you're doing. Uh, same with Bredegard Stronghold, the, the uh, land. Bredegard Stronghold is a card that I historically um, have just reliably tabled and uh, it's one of the best uncommon lands. It might even be the best one. And uh, I think that it's getting a little bit harder to table it recently as more people are understanding green-white and how powerful it is. So th those are the premium uncommons and kind of the directions that they push. A few more notes on kind of the subdivisions just to make sure that I've hit everything about those. I did end up mostly discussing what they're, what they're about in some detail. 
the Aura Aggro deck. Uh, yeah, you can't splash in this deck because you're playing so few lands. It's okay to play some tricks. You're really about combat and about pushing damage, and tricks are good there. Because you're, like, so generally, you have to be careful about cards that you play that rely on you having a creature on the battlefield. Because you only you only have access to so many slots in your deck for non-creature spells. And so, especially in a lot of colors, you know, you have some removal spells. In this color combination, you also might have found in gold and struggle for Skemfar in this kind of deck. What I'm getting at here is, if you cut lands, you create extra deck space. And that makes it easier to have, you know, reliably have a creature and then also have multiple things that you need to put on your creatures. So you get to play more, like, in red-white I talked about how um, you need to really prioritize, like, what are your non-creature slots? Because, you know, you play some creatures and then you need room for whatever amount of equipment and pump and removal and stuff you have. But if you cut lands, you can keep your creature count constant while playing, like, you know, pump and equipment, like, pump spells and auras and equipment and stuff like that. So, you know, if you want to talk numbers, like, if you're playing 14 creatures, 14 lands, that's 28 cards, that still leaves you 12, like, non-creature spells, which is, like, a lot. Especially, so, like, you know, you can play four or five auras and still have room for pump spells and maybe even a removal spell or two. So, you know, the, the end result there is you get to, like, be very prepared to engage in combat in a variety of ways and to, like, you know, you can play, like, Arachniform and Snakeskin Veil to protect it and Kai's Onslaught to, like, double the damage and stuff like that. So you can have a lot of different kinds of tricks and pump spells if you can keep your land count really low. The equipment midrange deck, splashing is definitely something you want to think about here. Um, I've had a lot of drafts where I start with like a really good black-white card, and I really don't like black-white as an archetype very much. And so I'll often, if I start with um, say something like Ferja's, whatever it's called, Retribution, that costs white-white-black and one, I know that I can splash that in a heavy white deck if I'm also green, it's going to be pretty easy to do that because I get green fixing, um, especially just Spar Sentinel in this kind of deck. Often, in, you know, basically, like, if I get a powerful gold black card uh, that doesn't cost double black, there's a good chance that I'm going to think of myself as, oh, well, I'll just be, like, green, white, and splash that. And you can do similar things. You know, you can splash any color into this deck. It's really easy to play, like, you know, green, white, splashing Bears of Lajara or something like that you know, some other good gold card um, or just good monocolored off-color card. You might need to, like, draft a little bit differently in terms of prioritizing, you know, various fixing that exists, but the mid-range green-white decks can do that very easily. Another note that applies really to all of green-white, people who've watched me draft a lot have likely noticed that Struggle for Skemfar is a card that I'm kind of, like, among cards that chat, like, I value struggle for Skemfar less than other people, and so often I'll pass a struggle and people will say like, hey, there was a struggle in that pack, why didn't you take it or why didn't you talk more about it or something like that. But in green-white I like struggle for Skemfar a lot because I reliably have creatures on the battlefield early, 
I'm planning to make them bigger anyway, which means they're going to be good at fighting, and it's another way to make them bigger, which is something that I'm really in the market to do, because my creatures have, like, the, the plus one, plus one counter that I get from Struggle for Skemfire is worth a lot, because it's often going to be on a creature that has a keyword, um, and so, like, you know, counters on keywords are much more valuable than counters that aren't on creatures with keywords. Yeah, and then as far as the, like, go-wide deck, obviously you're looking for uh, things that go wide, things that reward going wide. Goldmaw Champion, the uh, Boast Tapper, is secretly like a go-wide reward in that it uh, is kind of like an answer and a threat in the same card. And so it leads to like a more dense battlefield. Um, I think I talked about some this a little bit uh, when I was talking about it in red-white, but that's, I think, more relevant uh, here, just where you're also picking up Maya as another like big reward for trying to go wide. And then also, because of, like, Elderleaf Mentor is uh, a weirdly significant card. It's not, like, one of Green's top commons, but it does... There are not very many cards that make tokens in this set, but tokens matter quite a bit because there's so much, so many uh, equipments and a bunch of things that pump your whole team. Elderleaf Mentor is like your go-to, oh, I get two bodies with one card here. But also, something that's weirdly significant about these bodies is that one of them has three power and one of them has one power. And as it happens, there's two common vehicles and one of them has crew three and one of them has crew one uh the carve and the longboat and uh elderleaf mentor plays really well with both of those vehicles either both together or either one independently uh because the bodies that it gives you are coming down at a time when they're not likely to uh interact well on the battlefield themselves a 3-2 is likely going to be outclassed on turn four a 1-1 is almost certainly going to be it's also coming down at a good time to crew your vehicles uh you know if you play a carve on turn three you can play elderleaf mentor on four and crew it and it's going to be like better at crewing than other things just because you can have like this 3-2 that's kind of dedicated to that and then you also have this 1-1 that can do something else the fact that you are looking for things to go wide and Elderleaf Mentor is like a kind of like a go-to way to do that means that, well, you know, my go-wide deck wants Elderleaf Mentor, Elderleaf Mentor wants vehicles. So I guess my go-wide deck now wants vehicles, even though if I'm thinking about, well, I want an Alpha Strike at some point, I want to attack with all my creatures. Vehicles are bad at doing that because uh, you have to tap a different creature to make your vehicle a creature so you can't attack with all of your creatures and your vehicle you can attack with at most all but one of your creatures and your vehicle but raider's carve plays really well in go wide or in anything just because of the fact that it makes you draw gas i realized that the right way to think about raider's carve is that um you don't, you know, it's hard to know, like, how many cards to expect it to draw because it's, like, 40%-ish to draw a card whenever you attack with it. But one thing that it's really reliably always doing is it always fundamentally changes the odds that you draw a land in that on any normal turn when in your draw step, you're, like, let's say 40% to draw a land. If you attack with a Raider's Carve on the previous turn, 
your 16% to draw a land. Because rather than needing one land on top of your deck, you need to have two lands in a row on top of your deck to draw a land. Because if it's a spell, your Raider's card is going to leave it there. If it's a land, you're going to clear off the top land and see one card deeper. So it's the same as, you know, if you're scrying to find a thing or whatever. But an easy way to think about it is like, oh, wow, we're, you know, like... 26% less likely to draw a land just because we have this raider's card that it's that's attacking which means that you've you know in effect draw more spells uh reasonably quickly and uh that that helps you in terms of just like oh i'm gonna play a moderately long game and i'm gonna try to like assemble a wide battlefield so yeah raider's carve is relevant to this deck partially because of uh elderleaf mentor but also um you know there are a bunch of other three power uh, commons that you're looking for uh, pack mates and um, I've been pretty impressed with the uh, the boast creature that uh, the four mana three three um, that boasts to get a plus one plus one counter um, so incidentally if you are trying to do carve and go wide obviously that's a strike against also playing uh, gold maw champion and batter shield warrior because those are uh, creatures that don't crew it very well you want to pay a lot of attention to like how much you're trying to like if you're doing a lot of batter shield warrior and gold maw champion that's not a spot where you want to play raiders carve but if you're playing a lot of um maya and maybe some of the rare things that pump warriors that i was talking about or warhorn blasts and elderleaf mentors then you do want carves um so you need to be careful about how you know each of your cards work together and like the net effect of all the pressures in one direction or another um, when thinking about how synergistic a card is going to be in your deck. Wanted to talk just a little bit about like, you know, I, I think about, you know, like I'm talking about this as like, oh, green white is really about equipment, but like, isn't it weird that green white's about equipment when like red has a common piece of equipment? And green-white, like, has access to the same amount of equipment as any other color combination. There's, like, you know, colorless common equipment, colorless uncommon equipment, and then every color has one uncommon equipment. So, like, what's what's so special about green-white that, like, makes it any more equipment-focused than any other color pair? And the answer to that is you have some explicit things, uh, like the fact that ruined crown really wants you to have runes and also equipment in general really wants you to have runes and both rune of might and rune of sustenance are uh arguably the two best runes and they're certainly both great but also uh green gives you fixing which means that you can splash runes pretty easily and also white has explicit synergies with both runes and equipment uh there's Runeforge Champion that has explicit synergy with runes. There's Starnheim Courser, which has like relatively explicit synergies with equipment. There's like that stuff, plus like green's giving you extra mana to work with. And both of them, both colors are just like good at creatures, good at small creatures, good at keywords, and all of those things, small creatures, tokens, keywords, all of those make you use equipment better. So just the fact that a lot of your high quality cards our creatures are cheap creatures means that you're just going to prioritize equipment more than other decks even if you're similarly like able to cast it and then the fact that you're prioritizing it more lets you build expecting that you have it i think that that covers a lot of the big picture stuff some notes on specific comments just bar a sentinel i want to talk about it again i've talked about this card a lot but it's worth 
further comment on in I believe like in every version of green white that I personally draft I believe that Jaspara Sentinel is the second best green common overall. Not as like Pac-Mate is too strong a card. Pac-Mate's better than everything else, but I believe that uh, in green white, Jaspara Sentinel is better than Lindworm, better than Struggle for Skimfar, better than whatever you want to compare it to. Jaspara Sentinel is the second best common in green white because you use the body so well. You're playing a lot of other cheap things. You're like either tr open to splashing or open or trying to cut lands. Just like every every part of the buffalo with Jasparo Sentinel, you are both making good use of and like specifically looking for having synergies with. You like prioritize like getting onto the battlefield quickly. Just everything that it's doing is in line with everything that you're trying to do in any in any version of this deck. Snakeskin Veil, uh, I I talked about it in the Aura deck, but like it's super premium common for that deck. It's a huge part of like what that deck is trying to do. Uh, you can get it pretty late because it's not a premier like a premium card for basically any other archetype and um if you're not like if your deck's not interested in arachniform you're also probably not that interested in snakeskin veil like the like go wide equipment deck the go wide deck and the equipment deck both don't really care about or particularly want to play snakeskin veil next up mask vandal I believe when I was talking about red green, I talked about how Masked Vandal can be a little bit awkward in like the aggro decks because the body is so low impact. That's not that has not been my experience in green white, because you're like planning to pump your creatures. It doesn't matter as much how big your creature is uh, on its own, and so like a creature that's giving you really like high utility uh, value when you cast it. And also having like good creature types and synergies with any elf or warrior type stuff you're getting up to. All of that's really good here. So this this is a deck that uses Masked Vandal really well. Raven Wings is a card that I personally underrate. Like, I don't know exactly. Like, obviously it's weird to say I underrate this because if I know that, then I should just rate it more highly. Um, and then I would stop underrating it. Like, I, so when someone says I underrate this, you should like have some degree of skepticism about their statement like they probably mean that they think that you overrate it but they're being polite about it or something but i i genuinely think that i underrate uh raven wings like i'm too averse to playing it because um i've had some bad experiences and i'm aware of the risks and i haven't uh like pushed it enough to find all the best spots for it and like work myself around to, okay, if my deck looks this way, I actually should be playing it. I'm a little too gun-shy about it. I do think that green-white is a deck that uses Raven Wings relatively well. That doesn't mean that every green-white deck wants it, but I do think a lot of versions of green-white can use it well, uh, even though I personally am very unlikely to play it in green-white. Ravenous Lindworm is a card that's worth some discussion because it's a premium green common. Uh, I think, like, in general, it's roughly the second best green common after um, uh, Packmate. I think that, uh, you know, it, it has a place in green-white. Um, it doesn't have a place in, like, 14 land green-white, but if you're playing any of the decks that are trying to play a longer game, it does have a place. But I also don't think that it's, like, a premium card like i don't think it's you know your second best green common i don't think it's your third best green common i think it's a playable green common um and it's like better than 
filler. Like, you know, I'm probably going to take it over an Elderleaf Mentor, even if my deck uses an Elderleaf Mentor pretty well. Not if my deck uses Elderleaf Mentor amazingly well, but if it uses it pretty well, I'll take a Lindworm over it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm happy, like, if I'm playing Lindworm, I'm happy to play more Lindworms. Like, the best follow-up to a Lindworm is usually another Lindworm. Um, but, like, you don't need to, like, fight really hard to get Lindworms, and it's not like, you know, if you see, like, a solid uncommon, you shouldn't be like, oh, no, I have to pass a Lindworm here. Like, what'll I do? I mean, you, if you don't have a Lindworm, that's fine. That's pretty normal for green-white. I think that covers all the big-picture stuff I want to talk about. I think I can count on... Uh, chat to um, help me out with some details, but I think that oh I, let me let me quickly I guess is there anything I need to say about the premium rares? No, I, I think most of the premium rares are pretty straightforward. Or I've like talked about them in other color combinations. I guess I'd say with Elvish Warmaster, this card is just like a ridiculous bomb. Like I, I I don't know if anyone is reading this and thinking like oh this commits me to green black elves. It it doesn't. It's been great for me in every green deck you like slightly prioritize taking uh like green elves and um it's just like comically easy to win the game when you get to seven mana if you've like cast an elf or two after casting it um and then rally the ranks and uh realm walker uh both of these are pretty reasonable to take very early in green white and when you do, you should expect that the creature type you're looking for is warriors. Just all the time, just assume if you're taking this in green-white, the thing that you're like looking for and the way that like the type that you're looking to have in common among your creatures is warriors. It's really, really, really easy to get warriors in green-white. Almost everything is randomly a warrior. The rest of it's pretty self-explanatory as far as like the good rares go. So uh, yeah, that's that's gonna wrap up the lecture portion. So. Anyone who's here live in Twitch, uh, I will be uh, turning to questions in a moment. Uh, while letting those questions come in, I do want to take a moment to mention that um, for anyone who's unaware, uh, I do offer uh, private coaching services. Those are available for $75 an hour for a private lesson or, or sorry, $100 an hour for a private lesson or $75 an hour for effectively the same thing, but it'll be on my stream. So it'll be uh, broadcast and other people can learn along with you. If you if you are, you know, if you feel like you like the way that I'm explaining things and you're getting a lot out of uh, just like how I think about magic and discuss magic, but you're looking for something uh, more personalized, consider uh, consider booking a coaching session. If you are interested in doing that and don't know how, I have uh, a calendar on my website, samuelhblack.com, uh, where you can just like book a session without needing to discuss anything with me, and then I'll message you and uh, we can talk about details afterward, or you can message me on Twitter or Discord or some, you know, whatever. Um, and my Twitter is at Samuel H. Black. Um, and feel free to DM me there to arrange a session if that's something you're interested in. Now, uh, getting to chat and uh, questions about the circuit type. Let me uh, scroll up here and see if I've missed anything. Okay, the first question is about big green-white, where um, you have like potentially multiple lindworms. Presumably you can also have uh, rootless you, and you can have uh, the 3-6 cat, and then you have like strong removal in white with uh, verdict and bound and struggle. You can potentially, uh, if you're trying to go big, you can do some of the snow stuff. You can take uh, 
Glittering Frost and Sculptor of Winter and stuff to cast this big stuff. And obviously this is like a deck that's looking to splash because you're looking to have like extra mana and ramp and stuff. Yeah, I, I, so I talked, you know, I've had the most, like the best experience with like, basically early on in this format, I was drafting uh, much kind of like slower, clunkier decks. As people learn the format more, I've felt like people have really learned how to draft aggressive decks that punish the slower decks. And so like, I would say if I were talking about this deck a long time ago, I would be much more likely to kind of focus on like green, white, five color as like, you know, base green, white, but splashing everything and really prioritizing glittering frosts and sculptors and then using the like white removal and stuff. Broadly, um, I would say, obviously there's, you know, a lot of synergy if you're going to just say, well, I just want removal and big creatures and ramp. And anytime you identify a deck that has a lot of synergy um, and like card quality, and obviously like removal spells, ramp spells, and big creatures are all reasonably high quality cards and there's synergy there. Uh, if I haven't talked about it, um, it's still likely good. Like there, there is something there um, that can be a good deck. Uh, I would say the reasons that I don't prioritize that deck myself is that I think um, you run into the issues that I've talked about when I've talked about drafting control decks in any two color combination where if your opponent has like more colors they likely have access to more power or if you just like didn't get bomb rares your opponent might have and so saying like oh well my like you know long my like bunch of removal and threat and like big threats deck is like revolving around commons like okay that's cool um you might be able to like beat other commons with that but it's going to be pretty hard for you to beat like good rares and mythics with your like oh i just have some like you know verdicts and lindworms deck um, and so I've found that it's like easier for me to compete against a wider range of decks in my green white decks that are like better at pressuring my opponent. And then similarly, like I don't think green and white is like doing anything exceptional to use Lindworm well. Um, you don't need to do anything exceptional to use Lindworm well. It's not like a high synergy card. You can just cast it and attack people with it eventually. Um, but you know, I think that like I talked about how I prioritize it a little less in green-white than I do in other color combinations because I'm more likely to be using auras and equipments that don't play well with it. Obviously, you're not required to use auras and equipments. Sometimes you won't find them, and big creatures will work well. So, I mean, broadly speaking, I think, like, yeah, it's reasonable to have a coherent plan in this space, but uh, I feel like you're not really, like, making the most of all of the offerings in the colors uh, when you do that. I, I view this as kind of like, oh, I'll play some of this stuff as part of my like mid-range plan in my equipment mid-range deck, but I still prefer to have that deck kind of revolve around like making really good use of like Elven Bow and uh, Rune Crown if I can. And obviously you can also do like Lindworm stuff with like flyers and picks to cast your Lindworms. That's another like good way to use Lindworms where I would start prioritizing them a little more highly. Next question, with Clarion Spirit, do you need to go uh, ultra low with your mana curve as in black white? With Clarion Spirit, you don't need to do anything. Clarion Spirit is just like, you know, you have a 2-2 two -two for two at base that your opponent is super afraid of and really wants to kill. Um, any deck is gonna like hypothetically be able to trigger it once or twice. So like, you can just put Clarion Spirit in anything and don't worry about it. 
the lower your curve is, the better it's going to be. Um, but like that's you know only moving the needle a little bit as far as how much is it, it informs each of your other picks. Uh, obviously, like you know, I've taken a clarion spirit. Well, now that means I'm a little bit more likely to want to be like low curve uh, than I would otherwise. So like maybe I'm more likely to take an Usher the Fallen next pick over like a Ravenous Lindworm, where if I had taken, say like Finn, I would have been more likely to take uh, Ravenous Lindworm rather than Usher of the Fallen. Partially that's just about staying in color or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the, the Clarion Spirit, since it's always gonna be good and it's pretty flexible, it doesn't strongly push you toward things, but it can like, start you down a path pretty easily if you uh, are inclined to go that way and the cards line up. Next question, how do I feel about Oxplow here? Oxplow, uh, I have had good experiences with Oxplow in green-white on rare occasions. I think that, you know, as with uh, my discussion about Oxplow in blue-white, most of the time it's not worth doing. If you are going to go that way, you do want to prioritize carve and other creatures that go well with carves that you have something else to do with your ox uh you're also like relatively well positioned for the non-warrior versions of go wide decks because uh the ox is good at creating board stalls and can benefit from like you know stuff that pumps your whole team as well as anything else um so like yeah uh you know uh green white is a good home for ox plow but all the normal cautions about trying to use those cards apply. Uh, next question, does this deck want to main deck Wings of the Cosmos? Um, the low to the ground aggro deck, Wings of the Cosmos is a fine trick. Uh, happy to play some in that deck. It is a very low impact card. Um, I'd say it's, you know, like, I don't typically, like, talk about things as like, oh, this is a 23rd card or whatever. Like, if your deck comes up short, you can play it because... I don't find that I come up short in my decks, and so for me, like fringe cards are more about uh, finding explicit synergies rather than like, oh, I guess I have to play something kind of bad. But uh, <laughs> Wings of the Cosmos like legitimately can function as just like, oh, I came up short and I need like a like card that's gonna like do some things, but isn't necessarily as high impact as I might like. Um, so I think like Wings of the Cosmos is potentially good in the like really low curve aggro deck and then acceptable filler uh, in other versions of the deck. Uh, the next question is about which cards are worth splashing in the archetype uh, or in green white in general. And uh, that's mostly just going to be a function of like how good your mana is. Uh, like this is specifically asking about Call the Forge Master and the blue white sagas. So Call is an awkward card to splash because it's a two drop. But I did have a deck recently that was like almost mono white splashing uh, a couple green cards and a couple red cards that did splash cull and did like win at least one game straight up because of cull that almost nothing else would have won for me. Um, and so like if you if your mana is good enough and you have like equipment, then cull can be splashable. But you want to be really careful about like you know, being realistic about how early you're going to be able to cast call and whether it's going to be good at that stage in the game, which is going to be a matter of thinking about the rest of your cards. Uh, as for the blue-white sagas, 
I think of the blue-white sagas as like generally fairly weak and also not having a lot of synergies in green-white, so I would say that it's going to be relatively rare that I want to, would want to splash blue-white sagas specifically. Um, if we're, I mean, obviously some number of master scalds with other synergies could swing that, but like for the most part, those aren't high on the list of cards I'm trying to splash. Uh, all right, the next question is about um, comparing uh, green-white to green-red, where I, in green-red I talked about the, like, no middle, like the little stuff and then big stuff uh, using green ramp and uh, pick to get to the big stuff. Um, and so uh, can you do something similar here? Yes, you can. Um, I think Valkyrie's sword is, like, the card that it makes me most interested in doing that. So like part of green red doing it is that you have really easy access to Cinderheart Giant, which is like a nice payoff for like getting some treasures or whatever. Uh, in green white, I didn't mention it the same way because you don't have um, like, uh, you don't have Cinderheart Giant as a common payoff and you don't have um, draw two, discard one, make a treasure. Uh, as a common kind of like ramp enabler or things like kind of rampy spell um but uh you do what you do have is you have flyers um and flyers make it much easier to connect with pick and valkyrie sword is like an amazing uh like top and so like i didn't talk about it the same way but like the the best the best no middle deck in my opinion in green white is like all like little dudes and picks and then like valkyrie's sword that you're just like casting off of your treasures um but like broadly uh like yeah you can certainly like you can build the deck similarly to how you would build uh green red no middle but um i think another part of it is like i guess i just like the middle cards that are available more in green white maybe um need to think about that a little bit more uh but broadly like yes it's possible but i think it comes up a little bit less um how do you value batter shield warrior versus gold mod champion since they have similar mana uh mana and boast costs and go in similar decks also um i am not totally sure uh i'm like Obviously, we're very late in the format. I've drafted green-white a lot, um, but these are both not cards that I prioritize at this point, partially because I do prioritize Raider's Carve, and they're both not cards that you want in a deck with Raider's Carve. Um, the, and they're, like, very similarly. I've had, like, battlefields where my opponent has controlled both of them, and I've been completely uncertain as to which one I want to kill. Um, they're, they're, they're really comparable power level. I, I don't know what to say other than that. It, it's close and I'm not sure. And it's definitely deck dependent. What cheap creatures am I most interested in stacking uh, or is on other than Raptor and Storyseeker? Um, so Code Spell Cleric is uh, the other like uh, one or two mana common creature in uh, green and white that has a keyword. Uh, and like most of what I'm trying to do with Code Spell Cleric is use it to put a counter on something else. But uh, like that one one vigilance body does end up being a relatively good 
like backup plan to stack uh, auras onto, especially if you're going to put multiple auras on it, where you can start getting to the point where you have a large vigilance creature. Um, outside of that, uh, like Star like uh, Stalwart Valkyrie um, is a card that you can play in a 14 land deck because you're reasonably likely to trade creatures at some point, and so you don't need to hit four mana to cast it. You can cast it for two mana. Also, you might hit four mana eventually. Um, and it has flying, and you're really looking for flyers. So, like, Stalwart Valkyrie and Steinheim Coursers are, like, reasonable backup uh, flyers to put auras on. Outside of that, just whatever happens to be in play. Um, with, I guess, special mention for Codespell Cleric and Guardian Gladewalker, both as, like, creatures where you're primarily using them to put a counter on something else, but then you are left with a body, and so, like, you're, any, any body will do in a pinch, and those are bodies that are particularly likely to be in your deck because they, you know, play both sides. Question was asked about Funeral Longboat specifically. I mentioned it briefly as uh, also having synergy with Elderleaf Mentor. Uh, I think that Funeral Longboat is good only in decks that have like a lot of 1-1s. But I do think that uh, there are a couple of different green-white decks that can end up existing in that space, which would be mostly when you're trying to use either Elderleaf Mentor or the very low curve deck. Um, and it's really good in the very low curve deck if you're playing a bunch of Code Spell Clerics and Guardian Glade Walkers and Beskir Shield Mates. All of those are reasonably likely to leave you in a spot where you have a 1-1. So I think like, and Funeral Longboat does like hit hard. It's a good aggro card if you reliably aren't missing out on a lot of damage to crew it. So I do think that Funeral Longboat's a pretty good card in the like aura aggro deck even though obviously uh auras and equipment uh don't play especially well together like you are not, you're not looking to put arachnoform on your funeral longboat because it'll fall off next question is about bloodline pretender bloodline pretender is really good in the like warrior focused versions of this deck and you can draft it reasonably aggressively and plan to prioritize like warriors and elderly mentors and use bloodline pretender well yeah i i happen to have not seen it early in spots where i want to take it recently so i like haven't given a, a lot of thought lately but it definitely does fit in this deck <laughs> i drafted green white today didn't know if i should play 14 or 18 lands I can totally see that. Uh, obviously, you'd be playing, you know, presumably a different set of spells uh, in those two different builds. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, you had a Maya or two that were uh, making you consider playing more lands, and then, you know, you had probably some auras and could have gone the cheap version and not played them, and that would be a difficult decision. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, when we're talking about a single color combination, um, as I mentioned, there's just going to be a lot of overlap in uh, what spells are available. And so these decks need to be able to use a lot of cards in common. And in any draft where your colors are wide open, you're often going to end up with just like so many, especially if you're not taking Snowlands, with like so many playables that your deck can be built in a lot of different ways. Um, and I've definitely had some spots where people will show me a deck and ask for like advice building it. And like, oh, this, I don't even know, I mean, I don't know what archetype you are. Like, we've finished drafting your deck, and it can be built in a couple of, like, different ways. Like, I know what color combination you are, but not, like, what you're trying to do strategically, because we still have to pick. All right, a set of questions here. Um, it's the optimal lowest creature uh, and removal and uh, pumps counts that you should be looking 
four in green white. I don't have hard numbers about those things, just categorically, especially removal and pumps. Um, lowest creature count in green white, it's going to be pretty hard for me to find a version of green white where I'm comfortable with like fewer than 13 creatures. Removal, I, I get worried if I don't have any, I guess. Um, but like it's it there's not like a number I'm looking for. It's more just like there is there exist diminishing returns on additional removal spells. Um, but you know you're all you're always just like weighing it against the other things in the pack when you're picking it and the other cards you can play when you're building. And then pumps, obviously you know pumps is talking about a really wide range of categories of cards. I I, I don't have numbers for those. Um, next. Uh, is Carve good in the like aggressive aura version? Uh, probably not. Uh, if you're playing a really low land count, you're getting much less value out of the Carve's trigger. Uh, plus, you like the point. One of the big things that Carve is doing is giving creatures that you play after it haste. And if all of your creatures cost one and two mana, and the cards that you're playing on turn three and four already have haste because they're auras that you're putting on your creatures that are in play, you're really not getting any value out of really any side of what Raider's Carve is doing. So, uh, yeah, pretty pretty hard no on putting Carve in the Lowland or a version of the deck. Um, next question, uh, does the 14 land uh, version apply well in best of three? Um, how much are we counting on the hand smoother there? Great question, I don't know. Um, I haven't tried it a lot myself either way. I know that other players have and have had success. Um, and I, uh, I don't know how well, I, I don't know how much it's relying on the hands mover there. Next question is about Valor of the Worthy. Is it worth playing in either the uh, Aura version or Go Wide version? Yes, it's worth playing in the Aura version. No, it's not worth playing in the Go Wide version. Uh, is King Harold's Revenge good in the Pump version? I don't know. Uh, you could probably get away with one. Um, it depends on, you know, how many creatures you have versus how many pump spells you have and like, you know, obviously it's like much better with Code Spell Cleric than it is with Valor the Worthy, and like you could end up with a lot of either one of those cards. So um, you're really gonna wanna like look at the exact details of your deck to figure out how good King Harold's Revenge is, but uh, there, there are certainly versions of it where I could certainly see playing it. All right, the, the last question that I have is what versions of Green White have more difficulty to win? Uh, <laughs> bad decks that you should avoid drafting. Uh, the less synergy you have, the harder it's going to be to win, the lower your card quality. Um, I, I would say that uh, I understand the value of saying, like, you know, what are, like, what should I be trying to avoid? What are the, like, fail states? What's going to make me lose? But um, when it comes to, like, drafting, so much of what's going to make you lose is just not doing things well. And, like, there's a lot of space to do something well, and you need to make sure that your deck does something well. But there are a lot of different things you can do well, and your deck can be successful if it's doing whatever it's doing well. Um, so I, I don't know that I have a really useful answer to like you know what which sort of which one of these decks is bad or something like that. Um, all right, I think that is going to do it for us for this week. Um, I suppose I will leave you once again with a reminder that uh, if you are enjoying this content and you are interested in, uh, for example, my uh, 
notes that I um, was like referencing myself and thinking about how to organize this or any other any of the other perks I talked about uh, now would be a great time to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes if you are interested in that kind of thing and if not uh, no problem and uh, tune in next week for information on how to draft uh, whatever patreon tells me the next archetype is it will be either uh, blue red or red black um, thank you and goodbye